Hi there, friends. Welcome to King of the Ride podcast. This is a special one as it comes to you from the open road. In fact, this introduction is being recorded at about 60 miles an hour as we drive from Montana to Washington. Laura is behind the wheel. I am recording these words from the passenger seat. Hazel is playing with toys in the back seat. Hayden is asleep in his car seat. Ah, life on the open road as a family of four. Very important question to you. What is your favorite road trip food? Mine is beef jerky and Reese's Pieces. So, quick chronology. We got our van from PTCH, place to call home. Check them out at ptchvans.com. We got that just a couple days after rooted here in early August. We packed up quickly and started heading west. In one week's time, we made it to Whitefish, Montana and the last best ride. Put on by our dear friend, Jess Sarah. This was a special trip for my family as my brother made the trip, his partner, our dear friend, Beth, which all freed up time so that Laura and I could ride the last best ride. A race that I won last year, a race that she was on the podium last year, a race that is very near and dear to our hearts. We are excited to be back. So we basked in lots of family time, unable to race. As a result of my pulmonary embolism, I turned that day into something really fun and a fun fundraiser. That's a lot of F-U-Ns. Check out the link in my show notes below to see the Last Best Ride YouTube video that will summarize that project and what that is all about. And on that Last Best Ride race podium stood Brennan Wirtz, fresh off a very impressive fourth place at Steamboat just the week prior, complete with a stacked race resume here in 2022. Brennan is A, our guest today, and B, an excellent addition to the gravel peloton. Brennan is a gentleman. He's got a really interesting story which we're going to dig into today. But in short, he is the first person to approach the sport of gravel without a history in cycling and really make it, in my mind. He came to me years ago with the question, hey Ted, how do I make it in gravel cycling? And I was perplexed at the time. He's, he's actually been able to create a foundation and legitimize himself in this corner of the sport. Up until then, in my mind, to be a gravel privateer, for lack of a better term, you need to have established yourself elsewhere in the sport. A pro road racer, for example. A pro mountain biker, for example. Or, in Brennan's case, as a world champion rower. As you can imagine, he is a formidable character out there on his bike with a rowing background. He is closer to six foot six than he is five foot six. And as a tall cyclist myself, I dig riding and racing with Brennan as I can actually eke out a draft from him. Anyway, I am thrilled to have him on the show. It has been a real long time coming, many, many months in the making. He's been around the gravel community for just a couple seasons now, but it feels like a fixture in this community. So without further ado, Let's chat up Brennan Wirtz. Last time we hung out in any capacity was in Vermont. And then you went on something of a, a pretty righteous trip, which may or may not have unfolded the way it was supposed to. Tell me where have you been since, uh, I want to say, early July when I saw you last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a really awesome opportunity to go over to Italy. I'm working with Pinarello, and I got to go visit their headquarters in Treviso in northern Italy. Um, they have an annual Grand Fondo event that they put on, and it's a huge Grand Fondo. I can't remember the amount of people that do it, but it's in the thousands. Just Grand Fondo Pinarello, is that the yeah. event? Mm-hmm been going on for i believe this year was the 25th anniversary dang um so there were a whole string of anniversaries this year it was the um fausto pinarello it was his 60th birthday i believe mm -hmm. um and then it was his his father's 100th birthday he has since passed <laughs> away but it would have been his 100th it yeah. was the 25th anniversary of the fonda so they did this really cool limited edition bike uh custom paint job it had all the different anniversary numbers on it and oh, kind of a cool paint job that a bunch of the um, 
top dealers and really good friends of the brand and, and folks from all around the world came to Treviso for the event to see the headquarters, to get to meet everyone, and then actually do the ride at the end of the trip. So uh -huh. I was there for that. I got to take part in the event. I got to tour the headquarters, meet with everyone. Um, and then after that, went into the Dolomites to film a little gravel video that we're working on, uh, riding on some of those beautiful gravel roads through the Dolomites. Pinarello and, Project, mm -hmm. the video. Yeah. Yeah. And then also took it as an opportunity to unplug a little bit, step back, uh, take what ended up being about a month to reset, refocus, and kind of just train and prep for the rest of the season. I've been racing, I believe, alongside you since late January, early February uh, yeah. out in California with the amazing Grasshopper Adventure Series races. So it's a long season, still going all the way to Big Sugar at the end of October. So looking to um, just get a big solid block of training in and also enjoy the beautiful mountains, the culture and all that in the Dolomites. How'd you absorb the Dolomites? Like when I try to describe the Dolomites to people who've never seen them, they don't look like any other mountain. They look like giant pillars. And then it's this really cool uh, I don't know where you were specifically, but it's a really cool culture clash, not clash, uh, amalgamation between Italians and Germans and Austrians. How did you like the experience? Was that your first time in the Dolomites? It was my first time in the Dolomites. I've, I've lived in Germany for a few different stints in various parts of Germany. I have family in Germany. I spent a lot of time traveling through Switzerland and Austria, yeah. um, mostly hiking, but also doing some bikepacking and uh, spent a week uh, a few years back riding in the Swiss Alps, doing a lot of the iconic passes. Nice. But it was my first time in the Dolomites, and I'd seen photos of the, the region and knew about it, but had never really experienced it and didn't really know what the difference was between the regular Alps in Switzerland and Austria yep. compared to the Dolomites there in Sud Tyrol in northern Italy. But, yeah, the, the landscape was really striking, the way that these cliff faces pretty much just jut out of these smooth, beautiful rolling green hills yeah. littered with cows and cowbells and, and cute little villages and small mountain huts with, you know, all the, the beautiful flower boxes in every window. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a really striking landscape. And then on top of that, the pass roads that you can ride, all these beautiful passes and to ride some of those roads that were in the Giro as recently as this year yeah. uh, with, you know, complete with all the paint. Uh, all over the road was quite cool. Uh -huh. um, but then also what I really enjoyed was, you know, you have these these really typical rides that you could do, like the Celeronda or these ma major loops that people do with these, these passes that um, are very storied in the sport of cycling. But then what I really enjoyed doing also was some of these back gravel roads and or these like sinuous little one-lane strips of tarmac that would wind yeah. way up through these villages to get to some, you know, tiny little town way up in the mountain where there are three houses and right. a church and, right. you know, a little cafe or something, and then you can stop there and have a coffee and hang out. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a beautiful place to explore. Um, the bike I was riding didn't have a power meter on it for the first few <laughs> weeks, so I was just kind of, you know, just riding and taking it in, and if I wanted a coffee, I would stop and uh -huh. uh, have a little break. And and then, yeah, to touch on the the cultural element of the, the region, I, I speak German, and so to be in an area like that where I'm in, I'm in Italy, but I can communicate with people in German, um, I found that fascinating and, and just, yeah, that mix of cultures there and how they've all blended together is really unique and interesting where you have some Italian food, but also blended with traditional Austrian Alpine food. And yeah. um, I also really found it interesting how the street signs and the town signs all were listed in at least two, sometimes three different languages. Huh. Um, there's also a language called Ladin that they speak there in the specific valley that I was in. And it's this ancient language and it's only spoken by, I don't know, probably a few thousand people in these, <laughs> in these villages. But so um, it was really cool for me having this sort of linguistic background or having studied German studies as one of my undergrad majors to see how passionate the local people were about their culture, their language, um, and continuing to pass it on to the, the next generations. Yeah. And they, they do a lot to really maintain the culture and keep up with, up with it. That's awesome. Um, so along the same lines of passing along languages and, and going one generation to the next, let's go back to your childhood. 
Who, what, where, when, how? Where'd you grow up? What's family life like? What sports are you playing? What's academics like? Yeah, I grew up in Marin County, California, um, a place that both of us have spent a considerable amount of time in now. Heavenly bike riding. Yeah. Amazing um, place to ride. Grew up mountain biking, uh, riding all over Mount Tam, never competitively. I had a two-mile single track descent that I could ride to school <laughs> and loved tinkering with my bikes, pulling parts off, uh, trying to rebuild them as something different. And um, so I got into that, but never, never did too much racing, never was training or pushing myself, just out riding and enjoying it and exploring and going to, to new places. And I had a bunch of friends when I was in elementary school and middle school who were big mountain bikers. So sometimes, you know, maybe like once a year, once every couple of years, we take a trip in the summer to Downeyville and go ride those, oh, nice. those mountain bike trails and yeah. do little trips like that. But for the most part, it was just exploring the backyard on a mountain bike. Um, my parents were both rowers. So growing up, there was always a little bit of, you know, we'd watch maybe one, two, sometimes three rowing races a year. Um, like the Oxford Cambridge boat race was one that my parents always liked to watch. So I was always kind of introduced to rowing or it would always be something that would be discussed occasionally. Um, but I never had really any interest in it through, uh, through elementary and middle school. And then, uh, yeah, my, my dad took me to the rowing club and introduced me to it the summer before I started high school. And it was super, it's super convenient. It's really close to where we live. Uh, my grandmother actually lives on this boardwalk that sticks out into the Creek where the rowing club would go back and forth during the training. So, hmm. uh, my dad grew up in Marin at that, that house and my grandmother would watch him row when he was in high school. And so my dad took me to the club. He introduced me to the sport a little bit, took me out in a boat. And I really quickly uh, fell in love with that sport. And because I had been doing years of mountain biking, I had it built up a bit of a cardio base and had strong legs. And so that transitioned uh, quite smoothly into rowing and was able to pick it up quickly and find some early success there. And quickly became kind of hooked um, and then did that all through high school and was able to get recruited to Stanford to continue rowing in college, um, did that and had a few stints with the U19 and then U23 national team traveling around Europe and racing at the World Cups and World Championships and really enjoyed that experience, loved the thrill of international competition also mm -hmm. linguistically like we were chatting about earlier just the the blend of languages of these international competitions was something that was new to me and really exciting lining up at the start line and seeing these massive guys from eastern europe and they're all yelling <laughs> at each other in their in yeah. their language and um hyping each other up and you know you're just sitting there at the start line completely <laughs> completely nervous trying to <laughs> you know gather yourself before you take off on your race um yeah, so really enjoyed that that opportunity and the the sport, and um, enjoyed traveling and racing and competing. And then towards the end of my time rowing, I had some injuries and um, kind of led me to rediscover the bike and and get back into to cycling. Okay, mountain biking and rowing. Were you doing other sports up through high school or not really? Um, I would go hiking. You know, we were a very outdoorsy family, so we'd yeah. go backpacking, cross country skiing, um, things like that. More adventurous, kind of outdoorsy stuff. But mm -hmm. I played baseball super casually for two seasons. But mm -hmm. it was um, seventh and eighth grade, and at that point, everyone had already been playing for years and years sure. and years. And uh, I just wasn't that coordinated and hadn't really done too many team sports up until that point and enjoyed it, but ultimately decided it wasn't what I wanted to focus on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, aside from that, it was mostly just playing at the beach, hanging out, going surfing and nice. body surfing. Um, I really... I took a wood shop course in high school and got really into designing these hand boards that you could use for body surfing oh, and cool. um, would just go spend hours out in the ocean. Nice. Yeah. Um, Stanford's no slouch of a school. Did you, were you recruited elsewhere? Did you apply to other schools or was it pretty set from the beginning? Yeah, that's where I want to go. Uh, ultimately, I didn't apply to any other schools because of the the recruiting process. I kind of had my eyes set on, on Stanford. Um, but I was definitely 
interested in and looked at other schools, uh, mostly schools on the East Coast, some of the Ivy League schools that are well known for having really uh, strong rowing programs. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to beat the opportunity to stay in California, be able to train through the winter, um, not have to deal with frozen winters and frozen bodies of water and indoor training for three, four months at a time. Yeah, so that was that was kind of the decision maker. So my experience with rowing can be encapsulated in the whatever 300 pages of boys in the boat and and i mean cyclists like to embrace suffering and it seems like rowers like to make cyclists look like a bunch of wimps like (laughs) i mean you just hit it on the weather but i feel like most of the the powerhouse schools outside of the ones in california are in really miserable places to be on the water at 5 a.m mm-hmm is that accurate? Is rowing a, a sport of embracing misery? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think I think the team element of it is really strong too, and that I think that team bond is really where that that comes from, or the energy or willingness to embrace that suffering because mm-hmm. you're going through that same experience with your teammates, and you have this strong bond, and you're you know you're motivating each other. And I remember, you know, when you'd wake up at five in the morning to go to practice, it wasn't even a question. It was always just, well, my my team yeah. bus is going to be outside waiting for me and I have to be there because we've mm-hmm. got a boat with eight seats in it mm-hmm. and, and then nine including the coxswain and it just wasn't even a question like you just have to get up you have to get in the van you go to practice Who? no one cares if you didn't get an hour of sleep because you had to pull an all-nighter studying for whatever exam or presentation you have the next day it's yeah. every day at 5.30 the boat would get pushed off the dock and we'd head out and that would be the beginning of the training so yeah, I think you just have to embrace it. Otherwise, find yeah. something else. Um, but when you do embrace it and everything starts to click and you put in the hours training and springtime comes around and the weather finally is nice and you can go out and race and travel around and compete against other schools, it's really a, a cool experience. Are you competing largely regionally and then you might go to nationals? This is during the, the your collegiate ranks days. Um or are there regattas that all schools go to? So, I mean, yeah, you tell me. What is the what's this race schedule like? It's definitely it? a sport very much unlike cycling yeah. where you train a ton and you race extremely rarely. Mm-hmm. So we would have a few... A few regional races here and there, we'd have a lot of duels where one school would come to us or we'd go to one other school... Um, kind of races like that up and down the west coast maybe take a trip to seattle to race with the university of washington maybe one trip to oregon and then a trip to sacramento and then have two or three kind of home races Mm -hmm. in redwood city uh just sort of next to palo alto but for the most part it's basically train all year round and then have a few key races that you prep for and you have to be 100% ready to go for those races because it's really all or nothing like you have these very very minimal chances to prove yourself Mm -hmm. and if it doesn't go right then you kind of have to come back next year so in that sense it's well I think part of it is because logistically traveling with a 60 foot long boat is not exactly the easiest thing in the world. I mean, packing a bike for travel is, is challenging enough, but then to take the boat apart, sometimes the boats will split in half. They are bolted together. So then you, like when we'd go over to Europe, we'd have to pack the boat in a sea container and then send it over, uh, on a container ship. Holy smokes. And so we would be in our second boat or like the sort of B boat for six weeks while the the A boat that we're going to be racing in Europe makes its journey across the Atlantic Ocean over to Europe. And Which you notice? Do you notice those differences? Is it a B bike? Um, not really. Okay. We were fortunate enough to really have very top level equipment, yeah. um, both at Stanford and then also with the national team. So, yeah. um, oftentimes, what would happen is we would be on the previous season's A boat, um, which had been still only trained in for a few months for the training and then when we'd go to Europe we would purchase a new boat so a lot of the boat manufacturers are in Europe so you buy a new boat you race the new boat and then it either gets sold to a local club in Europe or ship it back to the US and then it comes home afterwards yeah you said eight person teams this might be as simple as somebody saying hey tell me about cycling if I'm going to watch rowing in the Olympics for example I see one person in a boat, two people in a boat, four people in a boat, eight people in a boat. What, what are the different events? Are there, are there endurance events and sprint events? 
community. For the most part, at something like the Olympics, the distance is all going to be standardized. It's all going to be the same. So that's 2,000 meters, yeah. which takes, depending on the boat class, anywhere between 5 minutes, 20 seconds to uh, a little over 6 minutes. Um, and the events are kind of split between open weight and lightweight. So that's kind of a, a split. And then there's another split split between sweeping and sculling. So sweeping is where each athlete has one oar and they're gripping that single oar with two hands and they are either on the port side of the boat or the starboard side of the boat. And then there's sculling, which is where you have two oars, one in each hand, and you're more in a, you're rowing more in a symmetrical motion. Um, And there often is not a whole lot of crossover between the two. So usually you specialize, you're either in open weight or lightweight, and that's mostly just physiologically. Are you under 160 pounds? Are you over? Mm-hmm. Um, and then sculling or sweeping is just sort of at some point in your your progression through the sport, you sort of are faced with the decision: okay, do I want to focus more on the sculling or more on the sweeping? Because you build up different muscles. It's a different. Um, it's kind of just a different motion. So, um, and then beyond that, you have the single. So that the one man boat. That's you're going to have to be sculling because if you were just on one side, yeah. you just go in circles. So <laughs> that one is sculling only. And then in the, the two-man boat, so there's the double and mm-hmm. the pair. Uh, the double is sculling. The pair is sweeping. Wow. Uh, and then you have the four, and you have that same split. And then in the eight, it's only sweeping. Yeah. Um, so I was usually usually in the eight-man boat. I did one summer where I was in a, two, a two-person boat. Yeah. And uh, that was a really fun, unique experience because we were sweeping. So we each had one oar and you have to be perfectly symmetrical with that other person. Otherwise you will, you know, go off course. And so we also had to steer ourselves. There's no rudder. It's There's a tiny little rudder. It's about the size of a credit card underneath the boat. And I was steering. So I had cables that were attached to the rudder, um, and then run through the side of the boat and then attached to my foot. And so when I would turn my foot ever so slightly, I'd point my toe in, in, in a direction, either port or starboard, and then that would turn the boat. So uh, when you're racing, it's really easy because you have uh, a line of buoys on either side of you, and you just kind of look down uh, from the direction that you've come, Mm -hmm. and you can see this parallel line of buoys, and you just try to keep the tip of the the stern of the boat evenly spaced between those two lines. But when you're training, it's a lot more challenging because where we were training that summer was in Hanover, New Hampshire on uh, the Connecticut River, Mm -hmm. and that's quite twisty. So my... Uh, boat partner Giovanni would have to he was sitting in the bow of the boat so he was the one closest to the front of the boat so he would have to look over his shoulder and see where we're going see if there was anything to uh, you know to avoid or a corner to make and then he would tell me which direction to go and then I would move my foot accordingly so a little bit of a trick you were always looking towards the stern yes you're never no, and you have to just trust each other and so that was that was fun because we really did build up quite a bit of trust over that summer um that's not to say we didn't occasionally run into a down tree or something that was sticking yeah. out in the water. Or, uh, we never ran up on shore or anything extreme like that. But um, I do remember we had we definitely hit a few buoys and, and yeah. things in training. Um, and me hitting on watching the events at the Olympics is probably akin to anybody saying, oh, yeah, there's a bike race in July, and do you guys race bikes on the road at any other time of year outside of the Tour de France? What What is a schedule look like um you're talking about world cups what are what are the other yeah i would say as as a post-collegiate athlete so if you're with the national team there there aren't a ton of races but usually it's split into two halves you have the fall season and then you have the spring season or spring and summer um the fall season those races are more endurance-based, so there are five-kilometer races that are more in the 15 to 20-minute range, and those are always more of a time trial format, so it's staggered starts, and you're, and that's mostly just because there aren't straight lakes that are 5,000 meters long. You can usually find a 2,000-meter lake to row on um, and race six boats across head-to-head, but in the fall, you're racing more on these twisty, long rivers um, against the clock. So it's a little bit different training for that. And then that takes you into the winter, which is where you're just doing basically like your base period of training, like you would in cycling to prep for the spring and summer. And then in the spring, you'll have some kind of early season races, some maybe more low key races. And then the summer is predominantly made up of three world cups. And so teams from 
North America or non-European teams would usually do one to, one to two World Cups because it's a lot of travel to go back and forth to Europe that many times throughout the summer. So most teams would do one or two World Cups. And then at the end of the World Cup season, uh, there's a, a short break before World Championships. Um, and it's the same in an Olympic year, just you know, replace Worlds with the Olympics, basically. Yeah. So end of summer, you have Worlds, Olympics, whatever it is. Um, and the Olympics is the the pinnacle for the sport, so that's the Tour de France for for rowing. That's like the yeah. um, the main event. So it's basically the training occurs in the four year cycle following the Olympics, and um, with that always being the target. And then in the years in between Olympics, you're focusing mostly on the worlds. You are a U twenty three world champion. Yes. Is that accurate? That is accurate. What event did you? Received that title. That was the under twenty three men's eight man boat in twenty eighteen in Poznan, Poland. Congratulations! Thank you. That's amazing. Um, how old were you at the time? Twenty one. Yeah. What is the traditional trajectory of a a twenty one year old? U23 world champion like take the eight guys in the boat are the majority of them still in the sport are they doing other things are they uh yeah what what is the trajectory yeah i think that year was was a big year for the U23 program where they invested a lot more resources in the program they they really kind of upped the attention to detail the focus and and the goals for that summer predominantly with the focus being on building the best team for the Tokyo Olympics. So it was kind of a feeder program for the Tokyo Olympics. Um, this was, of course, before the pandemic, before all the plans changed, <laughs> before everything got pushed back and delayed and Olympics became so crazy. But yeah, yeah the plan was with that program was 2019 or 2018. And then I think a few of the guys were graduating that at the end of, or had already graduated from college at the beginning of that summer. And then they were going to go to the training center with the national team for mm -hmm. 2019 with the, the goal being to prepare for Tokyo. I think, I think all but myself and one other teammate ended up staying in the program and going to the Olympic training center to prepare for Tokyo. And then I can't remember the number of guys that actually ultimately made the boat for Tokyo, but it was it was a substantial number of, hmm. of the guys from that boat that ended up going on to the Olympics. And I think that number would have been even a bit higher had the pandemic not occurred and had the Olympics not been pushed back a year yeah. and turned into such a kind of fiasco. Um, but I know, I know it was really tough for them to keep training through the pandemic because unlike cycling where you can just go out and do your own thing and be by yourself and ride for as long as you want, with rowing, you really need to be with your teammates and you need to be surrounded by one another and pushing one another yeah. and then also dialing things into the boat and getting your technique, um, you know, on par with one another. So, um, but yeah, that was the plan with that program was to, to sort of get everyone introduced to the, the rigors of what it would look like to train full-time in that program and prepare for the Olympics mm -hmm. and then also kind of get a sense of who's at the level that's, you know, the required to ultimately go to the Olympics and yeah. win a gold medal. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Hey, you can't just lock yourself in a room and ride the erg the way you can a trainer. Could you, if you were a single person in a boat, is that something that they would be more accustomed to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can. You can certainly train physically, yeah. but I think what's really important is, and, and to a degree it's the same with cycling, like, yeah, you could theoretically just ride Zwift and never go outside and yeah. But then all of a sudden the racing season starts and you're like, well, I have to still make my way around the, these corners on yeah. this descent and I have to navigate this bunch. Yeah, like falling between the dock and the boat. Yeah, exactly. I forgot so, what the water's like. Um, <laughs> you know, there's there's a, a considerable technical element to rowing where you have to blend yeah. with your teammates and match up and, and be really on the same page uh, in the boat. So um, I know that, yeah, they were definitely doing lots of indoor training, lots of solo training, but yeah. it's really important to be able to actually get out on the water in the boat together with your teammates. What is the financial picture look like? Um, are you pulling in individual sponsorships? Are you paid by a national team? Are you, uh, did you win the lottery at some point? I mean, how do you, how does one maintain the financial aspect? I know right now a lot of, 
a lot of my former teammates who were at the Olympic Training Center, which is now in the Bay Area, it's in Oakland, kind of out of the, the Cal Berkeley facilities. Nice. They, a lot of them are working part-time on the side, so a lot of the athletes are working. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's some form of individual sponsorship, whether that's kind of donation-based from a generous donor. Um, I think I've seen more and more in recent years more brands getting involved, but definitely nothing like cycling. Like yeah. it's not it's not a professional sport in the sense that cycling is, or many other sports are. Um, people, from what I saw, and of course I never made it quite to that level, so I was never living fully off of, of rowing, but. Yeah. From what I understand, it's, you know, maybe you get a stipend for some food and supplies and things from the national team, and maybe they set you up with a host house so you don't have to pay for pay rent. Yeah. But it's definitely not a glamorous sport, which I actually really loved because nobody is there for the money or for the fame or for, you know, to yeah. to drive a fancy car or do anything like that. Everyone, everyone is... For the most part, yeah, pretty much everyone is very well educated, mm-hmm. has a great degree, is super uh, intelligent, and then takes this time after graduating from college and puts the rest of their life on hold to pursue this sport that they're extremely passionate about. And they're yeah. not doing it for money. They're not doing it for any other reason other than just because they're so passionate about the sport and they want to win the Olympics. Yeah. So it's it's really a pure amateur sport in that sense where the people that are doing it are doing it really for the reasons that they just want to win that medal. Um, and then oftentimes after somebody retires from the sport, after whatever Olympic cycle they decide to, to call it quits after, then they have the... The, the benefit of having this education that they can then go and, and get a job with and maybe mm-hmm. tap into an alumni network or something. And and oftentimes companies are, are looking to hire those people because they've demonstrated over the last four or eight or however many years mm-hmm. that they have an amazing work ethic. They've been training at this really high level yeah. and the the work ethic, but then also kind of the, the camaraderie and the team element is really important too. So managing a team and that, those kinds of skills yeah. are things that you, you can learn from, from that. I hear you loud and clear. makes sense. Um, okay. So I lived in the Bay area for not terribly long, two ish years. And I think it was right around the time that I was leaving. I heard about these two tall guys and you mentioned one, Giovanni, and the other being yourself, Brendan Words, coming to town and riding bikes really, really fast and and smashing KOMs. And, uh, you know, I think our, our cycling listeners will appreciate knowing their running friends who come into the sport and just smash it because all runners seem to know how to do is run really, really hard. And know how to suffer and know how to turn themselves inside out. And I feel like rowing is in the really same vein. We see that. So you very quickly take a lot of KOMs um, and, and establish yourself as a very fast individual. What is, I guess, give me the tra- your transition from rowing to aspiring cyclist. To, and not even to where you are today. Just, I mean, that, that entry point as you're getting into cycling. Yeah, in, in 2018, that, that summer when we were in Poland, um, on paper, everything was amazing. It was this awesome experience. We won the world championships. We set a world best time, which I think is still standing today. Um, so, yeah, on paper, everything was great, but kind of take a look behind the scenes. I was having all these really bad injuries. My ribs were separating and stress fracturing. Uh, all the intercostal muscles between the ribs were really uh, inflamed and just giving me lots and lots of pain. So I was able to just barely make it through the end of that campaign and, and make it through the end of the world championships. And fortunately, we were the team that we were a part of was so strong that um, even with me having these injuries and then two of us, myself included, uh, we got food poisoning the night before the race. So, oh. you know, all these things that it was kind of a lesson in that, like everything that can go wrong sometimes will go wrong, especially at a this target event that you've been prepping for for so many months um so mentally that was definitely tough even though we won we got the result everything was great yeah it was just it was a tough time for me with these injuries and 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 just kind of seeing that so 
I knew that I needed to take some time off to let my body heal. Um, and so when I took some time off from rowing, took a few months off, I started riding more and more and went out on my dad's old road bike and just started cruising around Marin and then quickly got introduced to some local group rides and got to know who the fast people were. And they took me under their wing and introduced me to other fast people and we did more group rides, went to do a couple early season races, um, did some early season like crit kind of clinics and just really fell in love with it. Loved the thrill of going around the corners fast and mm -hmm. also loved the, the humbling aspect of just going out on these rides and getting obliterated and just getting dropped and bonking super hard way out in West Marin where I didn't really know my way around at that point. <laughs> um, so yeah, I just really, really was enjoying that element of the, the training and riding on riding around. And then I got into the racing and kept enjoying it. So, um, I just kind of kept pushing back my return to racing because I remember I was still maybe at at one point I'd been riding for six months and had my, my break from rowing had grown to six months and I would still bend over to tie my shoes or I'd sneeze and I would feel these twinges of pain in my ribs, um, Jeez. even six months after. So, um, it wouldn't affect me when I was riding. I didn't feel it at all when I was riding. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would get these occasional reminders that things still weren't quite totally healed. So, I think it was in part that knowing that I still was injured and that if I were to return to rowing, I would continue to have these problems and that I needed to take even a longer break. And then also while I was taking this break from rowing, I discovered, rediscovered my passion for riding and yeah. was having so much fun that I really saw no reason to, to go back. And as you're getting into cycling and of course having fun, are you seeing a door open? Are you seeing a light at the uh, around a corner here being like you know this could be a a professional pursuit not at all no i was just having so much fun i wasn't really thinking much further down the road than what ride i was going to do the next day yeah. um then i started to think a little bit about what races i could go to and try to put myself in a position to race as much as possible just because that's where i felt i was learning the most i didn't i didn't feel that my fitness and training was the thing that was holding me back. It mm -hmm. was really the race craft and learning how to race and learning how to handle the bike mm -hmm. that, that was the most important. So um, I took a lot of time that first year to go and attend as many races as I could. And fortunately, there's an awesome selection of road races and crits and various things in Northern California. So yeah. attended a bunch of that. And then I started, I was also working uh, very much part-time in a local bike shop and then that was uh, Mike's Bikes, and they have a racing team, so I kind of got linked up with their racing team, and that was interesting because I was getting some experience with the bike industry, learning about how the industry worked and how the bikes themselves worked, and mm -hmm. um, and then also racing for their team. So that that provided me a little bit more of a glimpse into the industry, and that's where I started to say, oh, this is kind of interesting, and there's some uh, maybe some potential avenues here for employment or work in the future um kind of with the goal and the back of my mind always being how can i live my life in a way that allows me to ride my bike as much as possible mm -hmm. that was that <laughs> that sort of quickly became the goal yeah. um and at the time working in a bike shop was a great way to ride a bunch uh -huh. um and you know fast forward to what i'm doing today is another awesome way to keep riding a lot proven that it works um as your your body is healing from these injuries of your upper torso, cycling is not uh, uh, the pavement is not soft. Have you had any gnarly injuries? I have, yeah. I a year after I started kind of getting more serious and getting into racing. I think it might have even been less than a year, like towards the midway through that, that first summer after I'd started kind of in the fall, I, uh, I was kind of faced with this dilemma because the road racing season sort of dies down in, I think, June, July in California, and there's this little bit of a break. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and because I had lived in Germany and I spoke German and had always been doing these trips to Europe with the, um, with the national team for rowing, going to Europe and, and competing with you know in a town where people don't speak english or whatever the you know the going to these various towns for races was something that 
wasn't foreign to me and was actually really exciting. So mm-hmm. I had seen I had seen little glimpses into this Kermesse racing scene in Belgium, <laughs> and I thought, wow, that looks cool. Like that looks like. <laughs> You know, because I knew at the time, okay, I can't just go and race in the world tour. You need, there's all these different steps that you have to go through to make it to that point. And to get that experience to race in Europe with a professional team, you need years and years of prep and training. And you need to know the right people. You need to get the right results. You need to have the right experience to make that happen. So I knew that that was just not at all feasible at that point in time. But I did see, okay, I could maybe move to Belgium and spend a few months there racing these Kermesses and just get a small apartment somewhere and just try it. And I figured at the time that was probably the best way to throw myself into the deep end and just see, okay, is this something I want to keep doing or are these guys crazy and is this something that's really not for me? So I uh, I kind of took a leap of faith and I, I packed up my bike and I flew over to Europe and I flew first to Germany and was visiting a few friends of mine for the first week I was there before heading to Belgium. And I took a quick little like two or three day trip down to Switzerland with a friend of mine to go ride in the mountains. Um, And I was hit by a car when I was in Switzerland, kind of head on. Someone was turning left in front of me and I hit the front of the the hood and flew over it. And my bike was totaled. I hit my head really hard, cracked open my helmet. And so it was nothing, nothing broken, but a pretty serious concussion. Um, And bunch of whiplash and road rash and all that so i ended up not racing at all that summer the rest of the summer i just spent a bunch of time recovering and i think it was about five or six weeks before i was riding again mostly because i didn't have a bike and my bike was totaled but um i I managed to build up a new bike and spent the rest of that summer just exploring and doing casual rides and then the rides got longer and longer and so i knew that 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 was really fun and that was something i enjoyed i even did some bike packing that summer and that was when I started to get a, uh, a glimpse into that side of the sport, like the adventure side and ex- mm-hmm. exploring. And and I still knew that I loved competing and I loved racing and that's what I wanted to do. But I also knew that for me, this kind of adventure ex- exploratory riding was equally as important. So yeah. I wanted to find that blend. Yeah. And still at that point in time, I had no idea what I wanted to do or what I was doing with the sport, but I knew, okay, I like competing. I like racing, but I also like this adventure stuff. Um, So I came back to California at the end of that year and then, um, was basically planning on doing another, another full season of racing with the Mike's bikes team based Mm -hmm. mostly in the U S focusing on road racing. And then the pandemic happened, uh, and that put all the racing plans on hold. Mm -hmm. And so how do you continue that chronology? Uh, at what point does (laughs) becoming a privateer even enter your your realm i guess that was sort of when the gravel bike came into my world Um, i'd ridden mountain bikes i'd had a hardtail a few years prior i'd gone bike packing in in europe with that and done some kind of adventure trips but i never had a gravel bike and then right before the pandemic i was building up a gravel bike and so right when the pandemic hit i actually had just completed this gravel bike and Mm -hmm. it was an awful time in so many ways but there Mm -hmm. were definitely some some moments where like that first month or two of the pandemic all of marin county all the parks were close to cars you Mm -hmm. couldn't access them by car but you could ride and so i take my gravel bike and just explore all these different trails that i'd never ridden before and go way far out and um really enjoyed that and enjoyed the sort of unique blend of bike handling skills required and then also the 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 fitness required and and just yeah really enjoyed that style of bike and that genre of of bike and um knew that as i was getting riding the gravel bike more and more i knew okay well whenever racing does come back i want to try this gravel racing thing i've Mm -hmm. heard you know oh there's this guy ted king and he does this race in kansas that's super long and (laughs) oh that looks kind of cool yeah um so i'd heard of some of that stuff and that was in the back of my mind but I didn't have any concrete plans at that point in time. And then once the racing season kind of started to open up and there were more races, I was still with Mike's bikes. I was still doing a bunch of the road racing, but I had the opportunity through above category, uh, another bike shop in, in Marin County. I had the opportunity to build up a really sweet custom bike. We did this marketing project with the bike and with above category where I went out to unbound and I took part 
in Unbound. And that was my first big proper gravel race. Um, I'd done a handful of local events. I'd done some grasshoppers and was loving it. But my experience at Unbound was really my first big, big proper gravel race. Unbound 2021. Which is crazy because that was a hair over a year ago. Um, Yeah, it's fascinating how how quickly time flies and maybe it's because the sport of gravel is so young still that i feel like you're a long-standing member of the gravel community so to speak <laughs> but i mean truly i guess you've really only gotten into it since since the pandemic mm-hmm. that's crazy man um you're you are how old i am 23 oh my 24. gosh okay which one 23 24, 24. <laughs> so um, you and I have talked at other points besides right now about your, your race schedule and it is in my mind, very race heavy. It's, you have, you've put together an impressively busy schedule. A, what does the rest of this year look like? And B, let's take 2023. What is it? What have you learned from this year that you're going to put into next year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think Living in California is amazing for so many reasons, and it's amazing to be able to train through the winter. We did the coast ride earlier this year, where in January we get the chance to ride seven hours a day for a week all the way down the California coast, and I think that's that's amazing. I look at all the my friends, yourself included, in cold climates throughout the winter, and it just <laughs> it it looks really hard. But we look at you, and we have FOMO, or you being anybody who lives in warm climate. Mm-hmm. But we also like our snow sports. So. But yeah, I think it's also easy to overextend a little bit and come into the early season a little hot. And there's so many races and, and fun events to do. And I also have some local competitors like Pete Stetna and a handful of others who are in, in California that are always ripping fast in the early season. So the racing's always intense and, mm-hmm. and super fun. And um, But yeah, we've been we've been going now since late January. Um, and a very packed, packed calendar. Um, I think we asked what I have next. I've got, uh, Rebecca's private Idaho in about a week. Nice. Do that. And then I'll have a few weeks off to, to get some solid training in. And then I'll go to Belgian waffle ride, Utah. Then a few weeks later, I'll have Belgian waffle ride, Kansas. And then I'll finish off the year with big sugar. So that'll be kind of my, my grand finale and then take a full month off the bike and do something else uh maybe some trail running or hiking or something cool um and then i think i think this year it was really fun to just experience as many events as possible because they all have such a distinct unique flavor to them they're Mm -hmm. all so different and they're all so fun in such different ways and and especially as this gravel scene is really growing they're becoming certain races are becoming much more professional and much more serious and there's all sorts of media that's there and and all sorts of things to do as a you know as someone who's really racing for the win there are all these different things that you have to do as you know as one of those athletes before the event and it's exciting it's crazy it's sometimes overwhelming but it's really fun to be a part of that whole scene but it's also really fun for me to go to smaller events where it's more of a community feel and it's not the whole story of the event isn't about the people racing at the front it's really about Mm -hmm. all the people who are there and who are having this experience in this community and um that's not to say that those bigger events don't have that um they do have that it's just as someone who is racing for the win the experience is different at those different events so i hear you my impression is almost as immediate as in the the super cutthroat events it's who's won who won the race what's the podium or it's almost just who won the race because no one i don't know as opposed to the other events, it's it is the question is much more. What was the event like? What was the community event uh, about? What was the fundraising for? What was the what was the vibe? Mm-hmm. And both are so cool because they're so equal in this in this mm-hmm. crazy gravel community. Anyway, yeah, non sequitur complete. Yeah, and so I've I've really enjoyed seeing that and fully immersing myself. I think I think for next year. Uh, I would like to build in a little bit more training time, yeah. also some time at home. I've been just on the road like crazy this year. Um, so I think having some time to 
refocus and rebuild and train and prepare for those, you know, that long season is really important. Um, I do still think I'll probably be racing in January again. Uh, the MIG and the Grasshopper events, those are just such a blast. So mm-hmm. he puts on an incredible event series. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably do a kind of similar program, but probably with um, just a, an overall smaller number of total races. Yeah, um, I still think I'd, I'd like to race a bunch, but maybe not 20 to 25 events, maybe more like 10, 15, something like that. Still quite reasonable. Yeah. 20, 20, I mean, yeah, people have commented on my calendar. Your calendar's so crazy. But I include stuff like the Coast Ride. I mean, certainly things that are not races. It's just like, here here are things on my calendar that I know are bike-related and on my calendar. But over the course of X number of months, you do really start to cram them in because come, I mean, the season starts earlier, earlier and ends later. But it still makes for a very, very busy year. How about, given that your time in the sport is still young, what have you noticed in that period? What, what has changed even, I mean, as silly as year over year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think here we are now, a little over a week post-Steamboat, and I think that had a very different flavor this past, um, this you know, this most recent um, occurrence. I think, you know, we're seeing all this talk about feed zones and what do people do in feed zones, and I know there's some people that want to keep things how they were and have it be more gentlemanly and more relaxed and okay the feed zones this like sacred space where we all take a few minutes and we appreciate the the moment and we feel take care of each other and we you know that have sounds this. very kumbaya yeah and like that's awesome uh-huh i've done plenty of events like that and it's great mm-hmm. i am a bigger person i burn calories and fluids like crazy i go through that stuff you know mm-hmm probably at a faster clip than most um so for me to stop and take that time it's super important Mm -hmm. but i also understand that if someone wants to carry a pack and they decide that it's a it's that's how they want to do things that there are no rules saying you can't do that and um so i don't know i think i think things are changing quite rapidly i think there are more and more men and women at the front of these races who are uh, a factor in the race. I think mm-hmm. the the each individual race is becoming more and more challenging uh, to win. Like the what has to happen for the stars to align and for someone to win that race is becoming uh, more and more difficult. Um, and I think also the industry is getting more and more excited about the space and what the riders are doing and and what the community is doing and what the events are doing and uh, I think it's an exciting time to to be in the sport for mm-hmm. sure fact yeah shoot I mean I th- I am asking your opinion from what you've observed in a year and a half I came out of the world tour at the end of 2015 I would not say that I started my gravel I started doing gravel events but gravel racing wasn't a term you'd use in 2016 mm-hmm so, whatever, let's call it a half dozen years that I've experienced this world, this genre. And it is so fascinating, the professionalization as it butts up against throwing air quotes out there, the spirit of gravel mm-hmm. and rules, no rules. And I think there is an inevitable level of inertia that it is becoming more competitive and that... I don't think the sport is ever going to be uh, fraught with rules and have a ton of them. So it is going to be this sort of the freelance, you know what's faster? Having aero bars, and there's no rule against it. And you know what's faster? is having a hydro pack, and there's no rule against it. Which is cutthroat racing, and that's what, at the end of the day, I think what people want. I mean, I used to be the first person to throw my hand in the air and say, like, yeah, absolutely, let's stop at the freaking feed zone because... Gravel's fun, and I don't want to win or lose a race because of the feed zone. Mm-hmm. And I think aero bars are freaking hideous. But admittedly, I've won two races in Kansas with aero bars on my bike. So mm-hmm. it is such an interesting time, and I'm curious to see what is going to happen in the future. Yeah, um, I think one thing I've noticed too this year is the scene, the racing scene, and the speeds that we're going has increased so much that the races are 
almost struggling to keep up. Like the race organizers that started a race four or five years ago, Mm -hmm. when they started the race, they were not expecting us to be a pack of 10 or 20 people bearing down on the finish line, getting ready for a bunch sprint. Like a lot of these courses are not set up in a way where you could come back into town and, and have a 20 person bunch sprint like the the infrastructure is just not there there's and there aren't really rules around what that needs to look like and it's it's getting to a point and i mean i, I don't still don't really know what to think about the uci but um i do i do think it's interesting to see that the 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 pointy end of these races has developed so rapidly and the speeds have increased uh so extremely over the last few years that I think it'd be an interesting time to be a race organizer. And you're like, mm-hmm. well, what do I do? I've got now this group of people that are coming back into town, and we've never seen this before. Like, well, what's right. going to happen? Right. Um, and to our listener, I mean, what Brendan is literally saying is you have a group of, call it a dozen, coming into town where there are stop signs, stoplights, volunteers on the corner trying to negotiate and help dictate traffic. But those volunteers, according to the letter of the law, are not allowed to stop traffic. Um, I mean, it has a lot to do with how well the police care about enforcing those rules. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's an element of danger that gravel is, is going to have some sort of reckoning with mm-hmm. in the not-too-distant future. And it, it's frightening, yeah. to be frank. Um, but if that is contrasted with closed roads, then basically we are just back in road racing and and I mean I don't I don't want to say that in such a negative way because I'm a, I'm a product of road racing. You've experienced road racing and I think enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Road racing is in a, a very low place in the states. And if road racing is going to be replaced by by safe, sanctioned gravel racing, you know what? Maybe that's not such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, uh, <laughs> you talked about how things need to go right, right? Mm-hmm. To win a race, I mean, you need to have a tremendous amount of racecraft and luck and and tactics and foresight and thought, which makes it all the more impressive to me and perhaps to you what Keegan is doing so far this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy, right? Uh, what do you think of the Lifetime Grand Prix? You did not apply. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Yes. Um, why did you not apply? I think it's a really cool format. I think it's interesting. Um, I think it's exciting to see that kind of investment in what we're doing. Um, there are little things here and there that I that I don't love about the series, but for me personally, it was really just I had already planned my calendar. I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to really focus on three main races, that being Unbound, Steamboat, and Big Sugar, and I kind of wanted to build my calendar around those. And Steamboat being the the number one priority. And so for me, as someone who lives about 40 feet above sea level, (laughs) to go and do Leadville, and also as someone who doesn't really ride mountain bikes that much, to go and do Leadville, which is pretty much all above 10,000 feet, and then drive to Steamboat to do Steamboat the next day, which would then, I I just felt like I was going to be shooting myself in the foot for what was going to be my number one priority race for the year. So... Mm -hmm. And I loved I loved Steamboat. I loved it last year. It was my favorite race last year. It's a beautiful place to go. It's the terrain is awesome. It suits me really well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to kind of focus more on that. And yeah, and I didn't I didn't even have a mountain bike at the time when they announced the series. And back then when they announced it, like I was I had cassettes that were on back order for my road bike that had been on back order for months. And I mm-hmm. was like, well, how am I going to get a mountain bike? You know, it's, <laughs> and and Pinarello doesn't have a mountain bike, so then it was going to be complicated yeah. there too. So. There were a number of reasons, but I think ultimately it was just I wanted to focus on the gravel events that I had already committed to, and I don't really see myself as a mountain bike racer. And I think it's cool to have this blend, and I think it's been really fun to see how well a lot of these mountain bikers are doing, mm-hmm. Keegan especially. But um, yeah, for me, I just I kind of had my my calendar set and knew what I wanted to focus on, and that was gravel. And it's exciting to see this massive prize purse, but I. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing it because, like I said earlier, I want to mm-hmm. ride my bike as much as I can. And yeah. uh, gravel races are super long, and to prepare for races like Unbound, Steamboat, and Big Sugar, you just you have to go out and ride your bike for five to ten hours at a time, and that's what I love doing. So if I get to do that, I'm happy. 
Well, that's a mic drop walk away right there. But I'm going to keep asking you questions. I'd asked you what does the end of this year look like? What does next year look like? What do you suppose 2026 looks like? That's not supposed to be a crystal ball question. And I'm not asking you to predict what the future of gravel is. What do you... You'll be uh, 27 then. What are you picturing? I really have no idea. I hope I'll be riding my bike a ton. Um, yeah. I... I think there's so much, what's, what I love about the space that we are in is there are so many different ways that you can experience it. There's so many different ways that you can ride your bike. And now even professionally, like some of the brands that I work with sponsor other riders who are full-time ultra cyclists mm -hmm. and they do a handful of races a year and their each race is thousands of miles long and, and it's super intense, but it's a totally different effort. The preparation is totally different. The mm -hmm. equipment required is totally different. Um, so I think, I think I would like to experience some other genres within gravel or adventure cycling or whatever you want to call it. Um, I still love riding the road. I don't. I didn't really race on the road all that much this year, but mm -hmm. um, I love time trials. I would love to to do a couple time trials here and there. Um, I did pro and elite road nationals last year and did the time trial and had mm -hmm. a lot of fun doing that and preparing for that. So. I really love the equipment. I love geeking out over the gear. I love dialing in my setup and making conscious thoughts about, okay, I want, you know, this setup for this given race or whatever it is. Um, but I also love the adventure. I, when I was in the Dolomites a few weeks ago, I got to do a week long bike packing trip through the Alps and strap a bunch of gear oh, on my, my road bike and just ride all day, every yeah. day and stay somewhere new each night. And got to experience that that whole region by bike and an alp crossing by bike was something i've dreamt of doing for five maybe even 10 years now so That's to pull that so off was cool. amazing so yeah i just think really whatever i can do that allows me to experience more places and more people and more communities by bike and inspire more people to try new things and do the same i think that's that's what i want to keep doing and so i don't know exactly what that looks like but I'm pretty sure I'll be on, on two wheels doing something yeah. crazy. That is outstanding. Well, traditional three final questions. Number one place, your favorite place to ride a bike. What is the number one place that you would like to ride a bike that you've never ridden? And with whom would you be most excited to go for a bike ride? I think my favorite place to ride a bike even though I'm fresh off the Dolomites and that was just amazing and I, I'm already trying to plan a trip back there, I, I do still think my favorite place to ride a bike is Marin County. I think road bike, gravel bike, mountain bike, there's just so much out there to experience. So yeah, it's, that's gotta be Marin County. Um, place I would like to ride a bike. I would like to experience more of Colorado like riding some of the the mountain passes there I've done I've done a decent amount of riding in Colorado but there's still a lot that I haven't experienced mm -hmm. um, so I think the next couple months I'm going to spend more time there and I'm really looking forward to just yeah new new routes gravel road um, I love being in the mountains I love being at elevation yeah. so I think just experiencing that is something I'm really looking forward to mm -hmm. um and then person I would like to ride with. I would like to go for a ride with Filippo Ghana. I don't, <laughs> I don't watch a ton of, of road cycling, but I, I, love, I love tuning in. I love watching the tour. Mm -hmm. um, and I always like seeing these guys, the bigger guys. I like, yeah. you know, I, I just, I love seeing the guys that are more in my uh, size range, just right. crushing it. And he is someone that exemplifies that. He's powerhouse he's he's done some really incredible rides and he's a a pinarello teammate of mine too so um, there you go. yeah i think it would be fun to go out with him it'd be fun to go rip around on some time trial bikes um it'd be fun to see what he could do on a gravel bike yeah so, yeah filippo if you're listening <laughs> ciao filippo um that's appropriate because you are certainly making a name for yourself but if people have not heard of you i often explain that you are america's filippo ghana um with your, your dimensions are taller than your average cyclist, much like Filippo, and your power mm -hmm. numbers are out of this world, much like Filippo. 
So, yeah. Brennan Wirtz. Or maybe Philippe Pagana is Italy's Brennan Wirtz. <laughs> um, awesome. Brennan, this is a very long time coming. I appreciate you making the time. I am excited to see what you do the rest of the season, the rest of 2023, 2026, and well beyond that, while you continue riding bikes. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and look forward to hanging out even more. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show, and I look forward to lots of awesome rides to come. Brilliant. Let's see the coast riding in. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Brennan. Thank you, listeners. Folks, if you enjoyed this show or if you enjoyed this podcast in general, here's my very simple ask. Open up your podcast app, hit the review button, tap on those five stars or however many stars you think this show is deserving. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the internet. Tell them about the show. Please share King of the Ride. It might feel futile, but please know it makes a difference. All right. That's it. Goodbye from the open road. Until next time, please enjoy the ride.